Welcome back to another episode of Marvel News Desk, your best place to keep up with all the latest news, reviews, and speculation concerning Marvel films and TV shows. We've got our usual panel today. We've got Adam. What's up, guys? I'm on Twitter at Adam Barnhart. And we've got Rhiannon. Hey, guys. You can find me on the internet as Brooklyn Wallace, uh, which is the pseudonym I use. And um, you can find me on Twitter as at Shada Patron or at Brooklyn Wallace, depending on when I change it over. I love how that's just a continuing week to week thing. Are you going to make the. I might do it. I feel like you're debating, you know? Like... I might do it right now. The thing I haven't done is check to see if it's available. You've just been getting someone else just free pub the whole time. Yeah. That, that other person's like, why am I getting all these followers? Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking the other day that you should try to get Patron to buy Shot of Patron for you. Like, I would think that would be of some value, you know? Right. See if they'll take it from you for a few bucks. And yeah, at the time, so. I was really shocked that it was available. It appears that somebody else is at Brooklyn Wallace. I'm Caleb. I'm at Caleb A. Borchers on Twitter, and you can uh, talk to me there. Let's start with this on the podcast, uh, just because usually we don't. I don't respond to things that people say online, but this is important to me. So we really value being a non-spoiler show. Because we know that spoilers stink, you know? Nobody likes to be spoiled. Um, what happened last week is we did a show where we speculated about things that would happen in Ant-Man and the Wasp. And we got really stupid lucky <laughs> about three times. So if you've not seen Ant-Man and the Wasp, we're about to talk about spoilers. Uh, the three things I counted, uh, Adam had cracked a joke. And yes, no matter what you think, Twitter, it was a joke that uh, there would be a giant ant playing drums as a post-credit scene that actually happened uh i made a mention of possibly bill foster being a bad guy and that sort of happened and then i also mentioned on the podcast that i thought egghead might be like a michael douglas like old flashback villain instead of being like egghead in real life and sure enough that happened um we just want you guys to know we really don't like spoiler stuff and we really <laughs> wouldn't do that on purpose. If we talk about it on here, it's definitely speculation and sometimes we just get lucky. And so, uh, yeah, so we definitely don't want to spoil you. Uh, if anything you heard on the podcast last week that was right was really just purely dumb luck. Um, also, the irony here, if you feel like we spoiled something... And then you go on Twitter, like, say, the day before the movie came out and told us that's a real spoiler. We haven't seen the movie yet. So the irony is you're actually spoiling us. <laughs> so we did have somebody on Twitter that's like, oh, you guys told us what the post credit scene was. And I was like, well, I didn't know that, but I do now. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the only thing we get preview advanced view at is Cloak and Dagger. We try to be really careful with that, so... Uh, if we say something and it's right, it's just dumb luck. That's it. <laughs> but, yeah, so I just thought I would open up with that conversation. <laughs> Speaking of which, so what? So we've had two movies this year now that the post-credits have been in the trailer? Yes. No, there were scenes. No, but th there was the ant. I mean, whoa, are we? I mean, spoilers for Ant-Man and the Wasp, but... That ant playing the drums thing was earlier in the movie, too. No, yeah, the exact shot that's in the post-credit is in the trailer. In the same way that T'Challa's UN scene was totally in the trailer as well. Obviously, Marvel doesn't care if he gets spoiled on post-credit scenes. 
Well, and I feel like we'll get to it. The 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 thing about that post credit scene that was affecting in any way, shape, or form was not the ant playing the like. There's context there that really Come that on. end credit scene was about a whole lot more than an ant playing drums. Oh, absolutely, so. yeah. All right, uh, let's go ahead and dig into the news. So, Spider-Man: Far From Home has begun um, filming. And we've got photos of Tom Holland being Peter Parker. That's a pretty lame news story. I should have started with that one, but all right, we've got some photos <laughs> of that. Uh, there's been a lot of rumors that Doctor Strange would be an Avenger cameo in Spider-Man: Far From Home, and it turns out that that is definitely not happening, according to Kevin Feige. Uh, Adam, do you have an Avenger that you'd like to see in Spider-Man: Far From Home? Do we still have to put in Avengers to make it? MCU connected or can Spidey just be by himself? He could totally be by himself, I would guess. I, I kind of understand. I mean, now that we're post-Infinity War, having Stark in Homecoming makes a total amount of sense because then, I mean, if we didn't have that connection, then, I mean, that ending wouldn't have had the clout it did. I'm not sure if clout's the right word. Um, but it definitely made us care a lot more for him then. So I, Spider-Man's the biggest, I mean, outside of Wolverine, Spider-Man's the biggest Marvel comic book character of all time. So he's uh, he doesn't need to be a, a supporting character by any means, you know. Um, I, I would get, uh, that Doctor Strange, I wouldn't have minded that, but that's kind of just more wishful thinking than anything. So if there's a cameo, cool. If not, Spidey's most certainly able to carry his own movie. Rhiannon, do you have a adventure you'd like to see in the next Spidey movie? Um, if we're assuming that the one appeared that appeared in the first Spidey movie isn't going to be in the second Spidey movie, then um, I mean. No, I mean, just enough that it feels connected. I wouldn't even mind if, you know, if he ends up interacting. I know there's there's this, like, fanish thing that I see a lot of him interacting with, with Shuri. And, you know, getting some interaction with that Wakanda tech and stuff like that. So that would be something cool. But, and he is far from home. So maybe he can hang out in Wakanda a bit. Yeah, I think um, in particular, I would. I think Black Widow could be a good fit. I mean, I don't know exactly what that looks like or how that feels, but if she's going to get a solo movie within a year of that, um, I think that could be really interesting um, to see how that, that goes down. So, uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix, or just Dark Phoenix. It uh, looks like we have some theater merchandise that is suggesting that they are going to wear the new X-Men kind of puffy X jacket, uh, costumes. We've kind of seen those from a distance. This, uh, merchandise from the theaters. The first time we're kind of seeing this stuff for real. There was also uh, a bit of a, uh, kerfuffle this week about whether or not the movie had been removed from Fox's website. Apparently it had not, it had never been put there in the first place. Um, getting some looks at the promotional stuff for this movie. Uh, does any of this excite you, Rhiannon, about a new X-Men movie? Or is it just 
going to be kind of blah until we see more. Um, I'm I'm just getting excited about X Men again. Um, so no, yeah, I'm just going to be blah until we see more. So you're telling me that movie poster I saw was real? That was like the actual movie poster. Uh, I think so. Yeah, that's got like Cyclops and Storm and Mystique and. Yeah, and Chastain and uh, J Law are the two big ones at top. Uh, no, I'm looking at uh, it's like a YouTube video that's got a bunch of like the stuff that they're gonna uh, sell at theaters, like popcorn uh, containers and. Stuff. Gotcha. Okay, because I saw a movie poster and it did not look good at all. <laughs> so I'm like, oh no, hopefully that's not what you're talking about. So that's reassuring. Well, this is the problem with X-Men is it could be that could be real or not real. Who knows? Because the quality is just of such question at this point. So does the uh, does them putting these characters in costumes like does that make you feel better about the franchise at all? Or is it just too little too late for you, Adam? Uh, What's the saying? You can put a lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, right? So, well, um, I don't know. Co- I mean, costumes are a good step in the right direction. You know, I'm kind of like the traditionalist. And everyone wants to see what they read in the comics and adapt it to the silver screen, right? So, um, costumes can only go so far if the writing's bad. Pa- I mean, if it's a bad movie, it's a bad movie. Costumes aren't going to save it, but. We'll see. I mean, this is probably the last X-Men movie that Fox will do, right? Probably. Oh, so that's the other news. I guess we can go straight into that. Deadpool 2 has a has the big primetime Saturday night slot at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, I, get, I mean, Rhiannon, you'll be at least in San Diego. I guess the thought is that'll be an X-Force announcement, probably. I mean, there'll probably be some sort of announcement. They are, they're doing a lot of Deadpool stuff, um, pimping the video release, you know, pimping, um, you know, the digital and home video release. They're going to have an X-Men interactive, like you get to hang out in his apartment with a bunch of unfinished Ikea furniture. And um, I think they have some other offsite situation going like Deadpool related. So they're going all in on Deadpool. So I'm guessing there'll be an announcement of whatever is next. And because um, you don't do Saturday Night in Hall H just to pimp home video release. I they're, sh- they're showing a they're showing the Zack Snyder cut, not of Justice, but they're showing an, an extended. Yeah. Yeah. Cut, they're doing right? an extended showing you know, a cut with that. Yeah. Some sort of director's cut or something that I may or may not make because it's late at night and the days are long. That would be, yeah, that'd be a long panel. Yeah. Too. It's not a panel. So, so it's not going to be shown at the panel. It's at a separate venue, like at 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, separate from the panel halls. I bet you Rob Liefeld will be there. You don't want to hang out with Rob? <laughs> I don't know who Rob is. Should I know who Rob is? Yeah, he's the guy that drew all the pouches on everybody in the uh, 90s. Yeah, he was creator of Deadpool. 
he also is famous for not knowing how to draw feet. So I knew about the not drawing feet. Like if you look at, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All his old, old, old pictures. There's like, just like little triangles <laughs> at the bottom of people's legs. It's really search. It's pretty unbelievable. Google this. Google Rob Liefeld Captain America. Okay. <laughs> Spelled Liefeld. Yeah. Uh, Life is L E I E, yeah, yeah, something like that. L I E F E L D, I think. Yeah, he was one of those. He's a really nice dude too, and he probably listens none to of, this. None of these. <laughs> Not <laughs> anymore. Seriously, man, I'm like, we're try- you know, I'm trying to line up people that want to podcast with us at San Diego, and you're on here. Um, none of these pictures have feet. <laughs> That's like a D cup, Captain America. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly much. right. The chest on that is amazing. Like, like he has just got a barn on top of his waist. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the images that I get just because I did an image search are funny too. <laughs> but yes, okay. I will keep an eye out for Rob Liefeld and um, searching through those images because people have done funny things with them is also a lot of fun. So, Rob Liefeld, if you're coming, I would love to talk to you about Adam insulting you. <laughs> <laughs> Rhiannon's the nice one on the podcast, so don't don't allow anything Adam or I say to perturb you from wanting to talk with Rhiannon. So, um, yeah, it's weird to me that Fox is. It's first of all, I don't understand why DC is not taking that primetime spot on Saturday night. It would seem like they would want to fill that void instead of letting Deadpool 2 video release be there. But um, beyond that, it seems weird. Fox is not totally setting up shop. Um, I mean, another thing about all of this is it's, it's raised the question of if Dark Phoenix should be released at all. Um, I'm personally okay if Fox wanted to shelve this and let Marvel start... Oh, like... If this became a movie that we never saw, I'd be okay with that because it would save us from ruining the Phoenix Saga a second time. Because they're going to do so much damage that even Kevin Feige won't be able to resurrect that storyline in the future. Um, I'm okay with X-Force going on, but as, as we get closer and closer to this Fox thing being reality, it feels like it's time to start wrapping up some of this stuff so that it can be relaunched. Does that seem that way to you guys? Yeah, for sure. How does... How does payroll behind a movie work? I mean, as soon as you start work, is it like every two weeks or do you have to like film the whole thing and then get paid? How does, cause surely everyone gets paid if they shelf the movie, but I guess I just don't know the end. I mean, everybody, it's all unionized. So, you know, your writers get paid as however the writers guild lays it out. And I think that's incrementally or at milestones. Yeah. I'm sure the SAG, the screen actors guild sets up, you know, I'm sure they have something in there for folks to get paid. Um, you know, everybody involved in this belongs to some sort of guild. There's a director's guild. Um, I'm sure there's like a gaffer's guild of some sort. And they have all that spelled out to protect them from these situations. Yeah. I actually have a friend who is a TV and film payroll bookkeeper. Oh. Like that's specifically what she's she does. So if I see her at the farmer's market, Adam, I'll ask her. See what she says. You should. Very nice. 
All right. Um, this week, uh, showrunner Steve Lightfoot was talking about Punisher and the episode runs, and he was saying that he really likes having a 13-episode run on their shows because it allows them to do a lot of character work. Uh, now that we're finishing Luke Cage, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit. Do you guys do you guys agree with him? Like, is it good to have that much space, or are these guys fooling themselves so they think these thirteen episodes are good? Also, I guess Jeff Loeb said this week that it's up to the creators how long the shows are. I guess they all just pick thirteen episodes. Like, that didn't make a lot of sense. But when we talked about it, Rhiannon, you were saying that you liked Punisher's length. So, what did you think about kind of these comments and the length the length of the next Netflix stuff going forward? I, um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the slow, I mean, and I am not normally one to enjoy a slow burn, but I enjoyed Punisher as a slow series where we did get to focus on everybody and all of those. I mean, what happens when it's done well is those B plots end up having more purpose. You're able to spend some time with those secondary characters and in Punisher, I felt like I really knew, um, a lot of the secondary characters and I really cared about their arcs because we spent some time getting to know them. You know, I think the other 13 episode series that we've seen, um, yeah, I mean, a big example is like Daredevil season two. It felt like they tried to have such intensity in 13 episodes that they end up throwing a lot of stuff at us, but not taking that time to make sure we cared. So with Punisher, I liked it. It worked out. And it had purpose. So I, I'm, yes, it's a slow burn. Yeah, it's not going to, it's less bingeable. But in the end, it's a enjoyable series. I'm trying to think. I mean, these Netflix shows are, or these Marvel Netflix shows are probably the longest original shows on Netflix, aren't they? Like, I just binged Glow Season 2, and that was only, that was 10 half hour episodes i think the finale might have been 45 minutes but i mean black mirror what they've had four seasons and they haven't even crossed 20 episodes i don't think yeah but Three most four seasons of black mirror most of those have been on um most of those seasons were on bbc so right so I, well even the most recent season there was only four or five episodes i think but yeah four i mean gonna mention glow because it's fresh in the mind i mean i think their character development was adequate enough obviously they had uh, allison breeze the the lead character um so obviously she gets the most screen time but i can think of maybe two of the 14 cast members that had plenty of character development throughout roughly five hours so I don't know. It always comes back to the thing. we. I think 13 episodes is too long, but eight episodes for Defenders was really short. So I, I guess it would come down to the, 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 the showrunners and writers room. You know, if you can make something excellent in eight episodes, do it. But just don't drag something out just to meet this magical lucky th- number 13, um, which is apparently what these Netflix shows are stuck on. It feels to me like, I mean, Stranger Things does this, right? Stranger Things was eight, and then it was nine. They seem to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it. So, um, you know, whatever. I, it, 
it it does not seem to me like they're i doubt that all of these shows were like well we just wrote out the script and it happened to be 13 episodes like it seems like that was a mandate from the because we heard i mean i think it was in the like press announcement before they got showrunners for any of these shows they're like hey we're gonna do four shows and they're each gonna be 13 seasons long or 13 episodes long you know like that's definitely mandated so it's i don't think that's we'll see i mean even even with luke cage season two i think it just was a little it felt too long i'm not sure i mean i'm probably in the minority of this that it was too long and kind of drawn out at some points i thought it was much better than season one especially the the consistency throughout but it just i don't know i then again i'm a person that kind of sort of likes the transformers movies because there's a lot of explosions and big booms so so take my opinion with a grain of salt but i don't i tend i don't see see why not i guess we'll see how iron fist does with 10 episodes right wink wink yeah maybe i don't know we haven't figured it out so i guess we'll find out in two weeks right we're bound to find out like what release date and trailer and all that stuff yeah oh yeah we'll get all that at, at San Diego, um, less than two weeks to the Iron Fist panel, uh, we'll we'll get release date, trailer, confirmation that Daredevil's coming next, maybe a Daredevil teaser, confirmation of Iron Fist season five, yeah, things like that. Yeah, I imagine Jeff Loeb will make some cringy reference about how it's going to get better. You know, sort of acknowledging how people felt about season one and trying to make us feel better about season two that's my prediction yeah i think he's gonna say well at least it wasn't in humans guys <laughs> that's kind of what i'm expecting out of out of mr Loeb. so i was in think geek yesterday and they had in humans shirts like the tv show shirts like on sale super discounted and i considered buying one just to wear to that panel but nice. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> jessica jones is filming as we said last week and there's been some video now of Hellcat doing some stunts. Uh, it looks like we're definitely getting Trish uh, with superpowers. Uh, Do you guys see those? Are you interested to see where that's going? Yeah, they looked really good. I mean, it's Rachel doing her own stunts, like climbing up a wall, flipping around. Um, and Kristen Ritter directing. Did we talk about that last week? Yeah, so like evidently this is the episode that Kristen is directing, um, so it looks pretty cool. You think she's going to be the uh, big bad this season? I don't know. I think it could be, I think that would be an interesting angle to kind of look at where they're going after this. I think what would be interesting, I could see her mom coming back into it if Jessica and her at odds, Trish kind of like falls back to Mama Walker and to see her like twist back into it maybe she even gets involved in organized crime somehow or something like that like to see her kind of enter that world of like kingpin and all that stuff i don't know if that would work but i think it could be interesting she'll just have to become co-partner co-crime boss partners with her friend luke that would be fun to me all right. Um, other couple of things. Uh, I'll, we'll just do the roundup thing where I say a couple other things and you can tell me if there's anything interesting. 
Uh, we had the Saturn Awards and Black Panther won a whole bunch of them. Also, Punisher won in a new category for uh, like digital media or online TV shows, something like that. So congratulations to those guys. Uh, there was a rumor earlier in the week that was started by Jim Starlin at a Las Vegas Comic-Con that there was 30 minutes of unused Thanos footage. Um, then we got the listing on the DVD, and there is not 30 minutes of unused Thanos footage. The Russo brothers have told us from the beginning that there's not 30 minutes of those, but well, let's just say there's a media outlet that doesn't keep the details straight on that stuff. So anyways, there were lots of scenes, I think, that were written of Thanos that didn't end up actually uh, coming into existence. Uh, also, there's been tons of promotional stuff for Ant-Man and the Wasp. I was just going to mention, I saw Honest Trailers sat down and watched the Honest Trailer for Ant-Man with Peyton Reed the other day. And they did an awesome job. He actually talked a lot about what was his stuff and what was Edgar Wright's stuff in Ant-Man, which is something he's always kind of avoided talking about. And so I would definitely suggest you guys checking that out over at Honest Trailers. It's like 20-minute conversation. Uh, Peyton Reed spills a lot of details about how that felt and worked to come into a movie that was about to go into production at the last minute as a director. So that stuff was all really good. Also, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, I actually haven't checked today. Last I saw, it was going to make about 80, 85 million this weekend. Is there a new number in that you guys have seen? No, I saw 79, so it's right around there. Okay. So that is the box office. Any of that interesting to you guys? Are you ready to move on to other things? Uh, Peyton Reed, also, I watched a, uh, it's probably 15-minute video with Vanity Fair where he, uh, he kind of does, like, in, in football, you know how they draw on the screen. He does that, but with the uh, kitchen fight from Ant-Man and the Wasp. And oh, it's yeah, It's really yeah. intriguing. So he he doesn't really get into the physics behind it, but he kind of talks about the effects and things like that. And I saw that's on the Vanity Fair YouTube page. Really cool uh, watch. He'll draw diagrams and talk about the uh, visual effects and how the salt shaker was actually plexiglass and, and things of that nature. Yeah, Taika Waititi did that as well back at Ragnarok. But his really didn't say anything about filmmaking because he was making stupid jokes the whole time. So, <laughs> All right, let's uh, jump into our reviews uh, of stuff. Uh, we'll do Cloak and Dagger. So Cloak and Dagger episode six, I believe, was this week. Um, it was the episode where uh, Ty's girlfriend is talking with her aunt about the divine pairings and uh they both try to get fake jobs so he tries to get a job as a drug dealer she tries to get a job as a uh, environmental scientist uh she gets close to uh the the daughter of her dad's co-worker and he tries to figure out more stuff uh also a uh, bad evil cop that killed his brother is trying to take care of uh woman Harlem cop O'Reilly. So anyways, that's the general plot. Do you guys have uh, thoughts about Cloak and Dagger this week and how that's been developing? That uh, ending scene, I thought Aubrey killed it with that acting though. Um, especially after he got back in the church and Allie Mackey's character is really intriguing. I can't remember her name. Mina, is it? Um, the... Roxon biologist person scientist. I'm not sure what she did. I know she yeah. 
But I thought those uh those two parts were really interesting. Um, the other thing was Tandy's dad and Mina's dad, the previous divine pairing. Is that kind of what I gathered from their Auntie Chantel's reading? Or am I guessing wrong? I'm not sure. I mean, I definitely got the sense that this new super fuel that's under New Orleans is like the next New Orleans tragedy that's coming. Like, after uh, after Katrina, the next one is that the super fuel is going to blow up if they don't take care of it and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't get the sense that they were a divine pairing, but maybe. Okay, do you think... So, was, was the rig they that exploded drilling for the super fuel or didn't they explain that because if it was would the mysterious fuel was what was the thing in agent carter season two that was called dark force right or i know that's the dimension or whatever but what was the actual material uh i don't remember i think it's called dark force right i don't know but that's how that's where ty's powers come from so that would be kind of another mcu connection that they're drilling for this dark force material and the rig exploded thus granting them their power possibly yeah so there's a theory i just want it to be something other than dragon bones i don't want it to be dragon bones they're drilling for rian do you have thoughts on cloak and dagger this week I had a hard time with them keeping my interest this week. This week kind of dragged for me, but um, yeah, there was nothing incredibly memorable. It seemed like it was it was one of those episodes that we talked about a lot with Shield, where it's just setting up things going forward. Yeah, and that is the one thing with Cloak and Dagger. It seems like it's like every other episode. So next week answers all of this week's questions. And also, this show probably has the most sex scenes outside of the Punisher's creepy episode 12 or whatever, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because this week's was completely gratuitous. Like, it had nothing yeah. to do with the plot. And basically what it was, it was like, oh, look, black and white. Is that Tandy and Ty? Nope. It's his buddy who's a drug nope. dealer who happens to have a girlfriend who wears a white shirt. You know, like, it so was not important to the plot at all uh the thing that i noticed was um there were little practical parts of this plot that just don't always make sense to me like so roxon is watching her mom's boyfriend enough to know to kill him and burn down his law office but then she can show up at roxon headquarters and pretend to be an intern and get given secrets because she claims she signed an nda and there's nobody at all that's like, oh, hey, that Bowen guy's daughter is around. You know, like, you would think there would be a little more security. And also, who meets a random girl in the parking lot and goes, oh, this is my intern. I shouldn't have to clear this with anybody inside the office. Like, that all just seemed very kind of fake and forced and, and silly. Do you guys feel like they actually explained the divine pairing at all? I mean... There was lots of dialogue, but I felt like she's like, the Divine Parian are two people that help us in a time of catastrophe. And that's that's it. Like, how we get them, Divine, you know, like, what divinity, you know, like, what deity is causing these Divine Parians? How do they come up? What do they do? 
I felt like there was an exposition dump that actually didn't dump any exposition. Yeah, we've we've seen uh, the ant talking to at least Ty in the trailers and uh, TV spots about the actual Divine Pairing. So I would guess it's on its way and they just didn't cut it. But yeah, that stuff really didn't make sense, at least in this one contained episode. How many of us? This was six or seven? Six, right? I believe episode six, yes. Four more. Plus black and white cookies for Rhiannon at San Diego in two weekends. Oh, I expect it to be like bungee stunt, whatever. Oh, that's right. Bungee stunts for Rhiannon. Bungee stunts. Oh, yeah. They make you eat the cookies while bungee stunting. <laughs> Maybe after bungee stunting, you get a cookie. Yeah, that way you don't throw it up. This was a missed opportunity. She should have been cooking black and white frosted cookie, like, uh, whatever her name was, Mina or whatever. When she was making the cookies in her oven at the dump or where she lives, she should have been yeah. making black and white frosted cookies. Would have been the perfect tie-in. Rhiannon, is that a real place? The old abandoned theme park? Yeah, the Six Flags is New Orleans. Um, that that was pretty cool actually when they were there because that's that's become like a place that a lot of people try to sneak into to take pictures because it's cool and abandoned and stuff. But um, I assume it was supposed to be the Six Flags abandoned theme park in New Orleans East. Cool. They had a pretty nice storage. What do you call it? Shipment container house. I've seen those on TV shows, but hers was souped out souped up whatever you want to say we've got a office building like that around the corner from my house actually i don't remember it i was having trouble focusing when i watched this episode but um <laughs> but there's lots of temp buildings in new orleans these days we ready to talk about luke cage and can we do luke cage through the end are you all finished adam oh yeah i got finished way sooner than i thought i would yeah, me too. Like, we kind of just started... Wa we actually started binging a bit as it went on because I felt like it picked up, so... All right, uh, I'm not sure exactly where to start. I don't remember where we left off exactly last week. Um, there was kind of a false finale, I feel like, in, like, episode 9 or 10 when they were holed up at... Well, 9. Because they were holed up at Danny Rand's facility and there was another confrontation with Bushmaster... And then uh, Reginald Cathy did his last episode and then just randomly disappeared for the rest of the season. Um, I guess let's start there. Did you guys, how'd you feel they used their side characters? I thought it was really interesting that we had like two episodes of Claire. Bobby Fish just leaves in the middle of it. His dad kind of comes in and then leaves. Did you feel like the, uh, the side characters were used well in the season? I, I mean, I did. I came away from it thinking the side characters were used well. Um, it, it didn't, I mean, I've, I've heard other people talking about how it felt like some of them just sort of like came and went, but for me, I didn't miss them because there was so much other stuff going on and they didn't have loose threads that I noticed. I'm not saying there weren't any, I just, there weren't any that were like bugging me. I mean, if, if you're going to consider like Bushmaster, well, yeah, and mariah and tilda as side characters you know i think they were fine i did think yeah bobby fish just kind of up and left um 
That was probably the biggest one that stood out. Plus, we finally got we got Turk Barrett in this chunk of episodes, right? Or was that before? It was this chunk. This chunk, yeah. yeah. That made it all worth it. Dude, man, Turk Barrett. I mean, he went legit. And I mean, like, and he was doing things by law. He was so proud that he was doing things, like, legal and all that. And Luke just went in there and bashed one of his big, pretty bongs. Like, I, that's where I started having issues being on Team Luke. So began his descent into darkness. The smashed bong. Let's talk about Danny. Because Danny's right about at this point. Uh, Adam, were you happy with uh, Danny Rand and the Iron Fist action in this season? Oh, so much. So much. That is the Danny Rand we deserved. I thought he did... I'm very... It's hard for me to be objective. Um, But yeah, I thought he nailed it out of the park. Um, They completely stripped him of his... What do you want to call it? He didn't whine at all. He kind of became like a Zen master, um, which which I really enjoyed. But yeah, that's probably my favorite episode, other than the uh, Bushmaster and Luke Cage momentary uh, team up. Um, you know, I really like that. And to see how it, it'll be interesting. I mean. With Link going down this path, and obviously Misty's against it, and in turn, I would guess Danny and Colleen are both against it. Um, I wonder what effects it'll have through the other shows. You know, you would think if Luke's becoming some big bad gangster, they'll have a problem. Now, my problem with Danny was still, I thought the Bushmaster martial arts were better than Danny's martial arts. Maybe it's just flashier. I mean, Finn Jones seems to still really be struggling to do anything interesting in choreography. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean, I I did think Bushmasters, and like we said, I mean, his styles, I am no martial arts expert by any means. It just looks cooler, you know. It's it's more elegant and danceful, and that's kind of when... I mean, one of the reasons I like Iron Fist comics so much is because they always come up with the most ridiculous move names you know on the bottom left hand corner of the panel you'll see some ludicrous like four title name for that move so that's kind of the fighting style i i imagined um danny having um but i mean we still got a vast improvement over anything we saw in season one in terms of just who he is as a character rhiannon how'd you feel about the iron fist stuff it was I didn't expect Danny to come in and be all Zen master with Luke, you know, going up to the cloisters and, uh, you know, having that little moment of calm. And I liked it. Like, it wasn't what I was expecting, but I liked it. And um, for, I mean, it definitely, that's why I'm pretty excited to see how Danny has grown in a post-defender's world. And this gave me a little shot of that. You know, maybe he's taking a little responsibility. He's a little bit inspired. Um, the martial arts don't bother me. Like, I don't know enough. I haven't watched enough martial arts stuff to look at it. I, I think him and Luke fighting together is still just the best thing ever. Patty cake. Um, 
was why these two are ever together. Um, I, I liked it and I, and it makes me excited to see more Danny. Um, somebody asked me if I was going to the Iron Fist panel so that I could boo them. And I'm just like, no, I, I'm excited about these things. I genuinely want to see it be good. And I expect it to be good. And therein lies the problem with most fandoms. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what this season taught me about these Netflix shows is they can come back up. I think most of these shows, the seasons have gotten not as good as time went on. But Luke, I thought season two was much better than season one. And so it shows you that, like, these shows can improve and they can get better and so there's no reason to think Iron Fist can't be a great show if they get things right in season two. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the thing. It depends on who's writing, you know? I mean, just in one episode, I liked Danny so much more. And, yeah. How good was Alfred Woodard towards the end as she was starting to lose control and lose her marbles? I thought that was brilliant. Brilliant performance. Yeah, for me it was that that episode inside Rand where a couple things happened back to back. One was that like weird like almost flirty scene with Luke's dad where you saw how charming she could be and she could be kind of getting information and like totally kind of like flirting her way through to get what she wanted from Luke's dad. Then she goes down the hall and emotionally devastates Tilda in a way that like that was one of the hardest things to watch on TV I've seen in a long time where she's just like I hate you because you look like Pete and leave me alone like it was so evil and then she went full on like when she gets a hold of that big old gun and she's just like shooting guys in the hallway and she's like taking on that black Mariah sort of like persona and she just decides she doesn't care anymore like, I thought all of that, it, it showed very different, like, things that she could do. And it was her range all in about 20 minutes, you know, that just showed all the assets of what she could do as an actress and bring to that role. I thought she was amazing. Rhiannon, do you feel like Mariah ended well? Like, are you are you happy with how her story finally came to a conclusion? I think it set some interesting things up. I mean, I think it needed to come to a conclusion. I think she got a lot of time. She got a lot of focus. We got a lot out of her story. It went plenty of places. And I was ready to move on. So I was glad that it ended in a definitive way. Because, um, I mean, if there was anything that dragged, it was that occasionally, like, for me, the Mariah story was just okay, I understand your family is complicated and dirty and messy and you're trying to make something better or make something good out of that. You know, like, I was done with Mariah. So I, um, I think they tied that up. I, I think they tied up a lot of stuff that makes me wonder what would be in a third season. Adam, uh, Speaking of villains, I know we've talked about this. Um, did Bushmaster's plot conclude well for you, or are you uh, are you with our buddy Charles that it was kind of prematurely, or just unsatisfactorily tied up? Yeah, I would say unsatisfactory. Uh, 
it just didn't feel super super complete i mean it, i get it though you know the whole season uncle uh i forgot his name uncle bushmaster you know kept saying you know don't stop taking it you know it's it's gonna kill you um so i kind of I get it. it. It just happened really quick and sudden, I guess. And then he left, and then his right-hand man, I'm not sure if it was his brother or his cousin, kind of walked into Pops um, for the scene. So, yeah, it just didn't sit right with me. I, I don't want to say it was, a, it was a bad way to kind of end his arc. Um, but at the same time, it was too similar to how they did Diamondbacks exit as well, I guess. And speaking of similarities, did was I the only one that thought that Bushmaster, when he was getting hauled away to jail, was going to also do like a Good Samaritan style talk? Yes, it felt very. They even did like Bible. That, didn't he do yeah. like a Bible story too, or whatever? Like, uh, yeah, something like that. I'm just like, uh, it was, it was. Th- just the way it was shot, it was almost too corny for me. It just seemed like it was almost a direct copy or a carbon copy of what Fist did. So uh, it felt a bit, I think, like episode 13 was almost a pilot for season three because it kind of moved us to some new places. The big thing being that Mariah leaves the club to Luke um, in her 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 last will and testament that you know she's literally got poison on her lips as she writes that which was interesting and she kind of is trying to curse luke with the club uh are you guys excited about luke owning harlem's paradise like is this a direction that's interesting to you and also how are you feeling i think rhiannon you've been you've already expressed that your uh, your faith in luke seems to be slowly dying so what what, what do you take with um, I know now that, you know, we talked about Legion a few weeks ago and Luke Cage, and they both did a kind of similar thing where they're taking the, the hero down a path we're not totally sure about. What, how are you feeling about where Luke is when this all ends? Yeah, um, I mean, at some point there'll be an AP Marvel episode where I talk about this a lot, but I there's not a lot separating Luke from the bad guys now. Um, the phrase I use... I I use for the AP Marvel episode is everybody in the MCU seems to be on equal footing until you decapitate somebody with a car door. Like the, the killing seems to be what differentiates the good guys from the bad guys. And Luke is just one kill from being just as bad as the people that he's, you know, fighting against. Um, and I'm not sure, though it was very reminiscent, there's the, um, in the comics, there's a Daredevil storyline where Matt Murdock finally just, like, takes out the kingpin and takes out all of his men and decides that the only way for there to be peace is for him to be the kingpin. And that's, it ends with a Alex Maleev shot of, or, or I think the next cover or something is, Matt Murdock just sitting on a chair, man-spreading, because he's the new kingpin. Um, and I've joked that I expected Luke Cage, I mean, the way Luke Cage was going, to just end with that shot with him sitting like he's the king of Harlem's Paradise. 
because that seems to be the exact place that he's in. So I'll be interested to see where they go with it. And I am conflicted, like, that he's uh, he's crossed a lot of lines. And he's pushed away a lot of people that keep him in the good. Him Him pushing away Claire in the last moment there, to me, feels like pushing away a piece of his conscience. Um, and it would be interesting to see if Danny came in the club, if he would let him be up there or, uh, how things move forward in that regard. So, um, the ending for me, I, I think at the time I used the words emotionally conflicted cause I just wasn't or emotionally compromised cause I like Luke. I like Luke a lot, but in the end, I don't know how I feel about him. Yeah, I think there was that scene with Misty had a big similar effect where I, I, they very specifically like had the door closed to his office and it was supposed to symbolically say that like Luke doesn't care about Misty's opinion anymore. You know, like in the same way he didn't let Claire up, that was supposed to tell us that Misty is out of his life too. And it's, I mean one of the things that struck me is this, this whole season he's been getting people have been trying to help him. Claire in her own way was trying to help him and Danny tried to help him. And I think Bobby fish tried to help him and his dad tried to help him. And it felt like at the end that he has looked at all five or six people that were in his life that were trying to help him process stuff, even DW. And he's basically just said, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to do it my way. And I, it, it does make him a very difficult character to like when he does that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He goes that through the whole season, you know, he always he always mentions, oh, I should have let Mariah die and all this stuff. And he wants, yeah, I mean, you pretty much summed it up. You know, he wants to get rid of crime and instead of keeping the mobsters, having the mobsters remain the mobsters and contacting the rest of the defenders he just worked with you know he his most logical decision is to become a crime boss himself yeah it just i don't know i wouldn't say at this point he is you know a likable character that doesn't mean he's a bad guy you know well also there's a weird thing with luke i think luke had a higher moral Cause I've been thinking about how, what he did like with the Italians and breaking all those guys, arms and legs and stuff. It's no worse than Matt. I mean, Matt threw a guy off a building in the first season and almost like there was that weird moment when Claire's like, did you kill him? And he has to stop for a minute to hear the heartbeat before he can say, no, no, he's still alive. So we've had our heroes go there, but like Matt started there and then pulled back. Whereas Luke, I feel like started, in a more altruistic place and has just slowly been kind of giving in to going further and further. Oh, I mean, there, there's a difference between kicking someone's ass and then purposefully, you know, obviously it's going to lead to him getting into actual illegal stuff, right? Trafficking and drugs and all that stuff. I mean, how could you now? I mean, what's he going to do as a quote unquote crime boss anyways, just be a, strong enforcer brute and if that's the case why does he need a guy like sugar you know well even the scene with the italian woman where he's like all right you can keep doing what you're doing but stay out of this box you know like this territory i just imagine if 
you know, Matt Murdock, like walking in the room and being like, what the heck, man? So my neighborhood, like they can flood drugs into my neighborhood, but they can't flood them into yours. You know, like, oh, that's cool. Like I could just see Jessica Jones being like, Luke, what's wrong with you? I just, you know, I just had a client who died from a mob hit because you sit here and like permit these people to be other places when you could stop them. I think that that whole thing is very problematic and interesting how it sets up. And I, I do get the comparison between, you know, what Matt's done, but Matt hasn't ever really, I mean, Luke essentially tortured that Italian enforcer, right? By breaking his finger one at a time. I mean, Matt hasn't really gone that far, has he? Um, I mean, he's done more of the psychological thing. Like I'm going to throw I mean, you Matt off this broke rooftop. An arm. <laughs> I mean, the, the cop in season one, he broke his arm and did some mm, Matt's done some stuff but that's just one that's just like one fell swoop isn't it Luke I can't even remember how it went down but he broke all five fingers just one at a time and pausing between them all you know I don't know I I just think it's different breaking an arm in like a, a fight or you know breaking the arm at once it's more methodological breaking finger by finger by finger. I mean, it, it made me think of, I think it's the exorcism of Emily Rose where she breaks the fingers once. I don't know. I just made me remind me of that. And it's kind of torture. I mean, I feel like there was a scene in daredevil season one where like he breaks a bone and then the guy lies and he breaks another bone or something. And I might be getting different scenes mixed up, but I feel like Matt did similar. It, it did. The scene with Luke recalled Legion to me. Yeah. Right. Where, um, where they talked to Sid and they said, listen, it's not that he hurt these people. Even it's look at the look in his face while he does it. Like th- the reason your boyfriend's a problem is not because he hurts bad people for good reasons. It's that he's enjoying it while he does it. And Luke had this thing in that whole scene with the Italians where it was like, like he was relishing it. Like he was finally ex- like, it's almost like I'm getting this out of my system and I don't have to pretend like I don't, you know, like it seemed like he was having some kind of joy in the situation, which was disturbing. Yeah. I mean, how do you think Tilda's story arc ended? You know, is it kind of, uh, I guess I'm not sure I really understood her reaction to not getting Harlem's paradise. You know, her relationship with her mother wasn't good in the first place. So it just kind of seems, at least to me, odd that that would be the fact, you know, the thing that pushes her over the edge, you know? You know, I mean, this is really nitpicky, but how didn't she get hurt with the lipstick? Was it just the fact that Mariah was touching Mariah longer? Oh, didn't she have, like, wax lips on or something? Oh, I guess I didn't pay attention. I don't know how poisonous lipstick works. Or, or maybe she had built up an immunity. <laughs> yeah. The thing with the club to me was um, she was always kind of supposed to be the spiritual heir to Cottonmouth. She loved music the way he loved music. And there's that scene um, in the uh, at the burial grounds where she leaves a flower at Cornell's grave and talks about how he always treated her differently. And how, 
even though he knew that she was Pete's child, that he never treated her differently. He always loved her and cared for her. So I think near the end of the series, she sees herself as the successor to Cornell, as the club owner and the musician, and playing his piano and all that stuff. And so Mariah kind of takes away that connection for her with the person that she actually liked from her family. Gotcha. I just want to say that I loved... um, I loved Shades this season. Like, I kind of liked them last season, but I continue... I feel like they've done some interesting things, some complex things. I always love somebody who's despicable and, like, a cold-blooded killer, but still has their own rules and their own, like, morals and ethics. And when he would... You know, like, the way he turned on Mariah because she broke the rules, like... I find it fascinating that in his head, snitching is terrible, but there's a level of terrible that Mariah got to that justifies snitching. You know, like that that math that goes on in his brain and the way you can see him thinking about stuff. I just, uh, I really loved how Theo Rossi developed that character and I'm excited to see more shades in the future. So it seems like the future is bringing people back, right? Like they have Diamondback waiting in the wings they have Bushmaster still alive. They have Shades still alive. Like, there's a potential to just do a, like, all of Luke's demons come back to haunt him thing in the future. I- I'd assume that's where they go season three, right? Oh, yeah. It'd be cool to see, like, a Serpent Society type deal. Although that does take some hard to do without a cotton mouth. But that or, I mean, obviously the most clear villain at this point would be Tilda. So whether if she kind of gets the gang back together or what. Or if she takes up the Cottonmouth persona, right? Because she loves Cornell so much, she decides Mm. to become like a female Cottonmouth. I don't know how they bring Bushmaster back though. I mean, he's pretty much, he's pretty much done for, but it's comics so that you can do whatever. A little time in the islands, you know, little recovery. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Little R and R. That's all it takes. All right, that leaves uh, one big thing for us to talk about. That's Ant Man and the Wasp. Oh. So uh, that film came out this weekend. Uh, Rhiannon, I'll let you go ahead. What did you, What's your general impressions of this? Uh, the twentieth movie in the history of the MCU. Oh my gosh, twentieth movie. Um. I enjoyed it, but I, I, at the end of it, I felt like we were just getting warmed up. I feel like I saw an awesome first and second act and that we were just getting going and then boom credits. And it wasn't even like, oh my God, credits now what? It was just kind of like, okay, we were just getting to the good stuff. Um, I felt that it was just really light. And I mean, maybe that's what the MCU needs right now is a movie that's just light. And I mean, it was hilarious, which anything less than hilarious would have been a disappointment. But I, I, there there were some things that I expected more, but the fight scenes with ghost, I mean, ghost was amazing. I think the ghost storyline was wonderful. Um, the family storylines, the the way all of these people, all of these people seemed like genuinely good people, except for maybe Walton Goggins' character. 
And um, yeah, it was it was Ant Man, you know, like you don't go out and buy vanilla ice cream and expect it to be Infinity War. Oh boy, we're back to the ice cream. It's always the, <laughs> it's the insect characters. The ice cream. That brings out the ice cream conversation. It was a movie, you know. I I think it's kind of the movie we needed. You know, if it wasn't Ant-Man and the Wasp post-Infinity War, something else goofy like a Guardians movie was probably needed. Um, at least for a few hours until we got... We went straight back to the reality with the two post credit scenes. Um, yeah, there was... There was a little too much going on. You know, I mean, Goggins is a huge name to essentially have that character amount to nothing. Um, I thought he was going to end up being, you know, the big bad behind Ghost and, and company. Um, Ghost was awesome. The effects were awesome. The fight scenes were solid. Um, I thought Bill Foster was going to have a much larger role. Um, you know, he, he's a pretty classic comic book character and his MCU story arc is essentially complete unless they do some finagling. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, it, it was good. I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't Thor the Dark World. <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably right around the middle of the pact for me. Um, you know, I, I did like Ghost more than yellow jacket she was much more interesting i mean with ant-man you can't think about the i'm not a science teacher by any means um but you start thinking about the, the physics behind it and ghosts powers and all that stuff and you know that the stuff starts making not too much sense um so as long as you don't think about the movie you know it's a pretty decent movie well, that's that's really close to kind of what I was gonna say. Uh, this is probably un, a bit unfair. It felt like the Chinese food of MCU movies. Have you ever had that experience where you like get Chinese food and you're really full when you eat it, and then two hours later you're like, I don't, I feel hungry again. Like what happened? You know, I remember. Oh look, they brought egg rolls. Yeah, yeah. Like I um. I, I left the theater being like, wow, I really love this. This was awesome. And then, like, we have a, a way to talk about these movies uh, in our internal communications at Marvel News Desk. And this is the least conversation we've ever had about a movie. Because usually, like, somebody goes, oh, did you notice this? And we're like, oh, that was so smart. And there's these themes and these little characterizations and, like, little, like, I don't know, like, all these things that built up these characters, and particularly with Infinity War. It felt like for days and days and days we're just unpacking that movie. And this movie didn't get more complex or interesting after I left the theater. It was like, yeah, okay, it is what it is. And um, I, I like well, the one thing I felt coming out of it was, can you name a major like emotional or character development arc for any of these characters? Were any of them significantly different at the end of the movie than the beginning of the movie? I want to know if it's different. You know, I, I really enjoyed Cassie's arc throughout the movie. I'm not sure if you could even call it an arc more so than like, like a purpose. Um, I think, I mean, there, 
I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, I, I would say I Scott probably grew the most a little bit, right? With the whole partner type stuff or not? I mean, I guess he went from not using Wasp as a partner in Civil War to wanting to have her as a partner. But where we left off at the end of Ant-Man, yeah. he wanted to be her partner. Like, that didn't... I don't know. Like, that was kind of weird. Yeah, true. I mean, even Luis is pretty much the same at the end of the movie as the beginning. But now he knows that truth serum actually exists. <laughs> that was one of the best bits. Where the, <laughs> he's like, yes, it's it not was. truth serum. And they're like, no, it really is. Like, you can try to, to nuance this all the ways you want. Wow. So no, I mean... I, it's a stretch to say any of these characters cha- characters changed in a major way. I mean, Ghost changed physically, right? She no longer has powers, correct? Uh, they're keeping him at bay. Yeah, she has to continue to have the quantum... Quantum what up... The power energy to keep it away. Yeah, that's what Scott was going into the quantum realm in the post credit scene. Or mid credit scene. That's why he's going into the quantum realm is to get her more healing quantum juice. Oh, I totally missed that. I thought he was just going in there to, I don't know, power the whole entire world with quantum energy instead of Tony Stark's arc reactor. Now, we did bring this up. It was interesting that it was effectively an antagonist-free movie in a way, like Ghost is kind of a bad guy and Foster is kind of a bad but. Only in as much as they're trying to save... Like, she's trying to save herself. She's no more, to me, a bad guy than Hank Pym is for wanting to save Janet. It felt like uh, the plot was two people who were, like, fighting over, like, one parachute in midair, right? Like, that was kind of the whole thing. Uh, Did you guys enjoy that? Kind of changing the the nature of the adversarialness and that there wasn't really a... Super, uh, you know, like a, a villain, so to speak, in a traditional sense. I think the movie really lacked for it. Um, that was one of my things. Was I just kept waiting for you know some larger plot or some higher stakes to be revealed, and it really wasn't. It was really. It was more of a. Um, the movie was less, there were fights along the way, but it was a journey to the quantum realm was what the whole movie was about. And so you have these people in the way that they that they fought to get along the way, but no, you know, it's not like Egghead had imprisoned Janet Van Dyne in the quantum realm and it turned out to be, you know, some massive plot and he was a villain. And I kept waiting for some little twist like that to make it bigger. That's a good point. I mean, the the antagonist of the movie was the fact that essentially they couldn't get into the quantum realm as easy as they would have liked. And then Sonny Birch and Ghost just happened. I mean, Sonny didn't even know what he was stealing. He was just stealing something because it had Hank Pym's name on it. And Ghost was tired of being in excruciating pain so i guess there there wasn't really a villain well and it reminds me of those classic superhero fights where like two superheroes meet each other and they fight because they they just have to and it's comic logic 
And if they sat down and talked to each other for a minute, maybe they could work it out. If we knew ahead of time... No, I was going to say, or until one of them said Martha. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in this situation, if we had known that Janet could heal Ghost, which, by the way, wasn't that big of a surprise. Like, if Ghost and Hank could have sat down and said, you know, she's getting in the quantum realm. She understands it pretty well. Uh, Give us a minute to get her back, and then we'll see if she knows something and we can heal you. Then there's no conflict at all in this movie. Ghost and Wasp team up and kick Sonny Birch's butt, right? And they tie him to a chair at his restaurant. They go blow up the lab. They go in the quantum realm. They get Janet. She comes out. She heals Ghost. Boom, we're done. Like if Ghost and the Ant-Man Wasp team would just work together instead of trying to fight each other the whole thing, there really isn't anything to fight over. Because in the end, they both getting Janet back was the best thing for both, both of them. So... I think that is, that that's kind of where it really does, you know, it gets close to that post-it note plot that could be fixed by just one little piece of information um, about the situation, you know. I feel like we've been kind of negative, um, but I think all three of us really enjoyed it too, right? Like, in the end, I enjoyed the movie a lot. I had a good time with it. Uh, I, I liked the action. I mean... I did okay before we go to good stuff the one complaint I, I did feel like the trailers did too many of the action beats I did not feel like there was much action that I did not see in the trailers which I find frustrating just from a marketing perspective but I was yeah I was gonna say the yeah I mean the the best action sequences were the kitchen fight and that car chase and I, you know we essentially saw all of those in its entirety so that was kind of a bummer all right, so we've been kind of negative, but you guys did enjoy it, right? I mean, what what are some of the things that you had a lot of fun with? What, what did you like about this movie? I mean, Scott and Cassie. I, the, the, the father-daughter relationship, the just... Him making the big maze and starting the business with Luis... Um, that was one of my big things from the first Ant-Man. I think that's like a subject in America that needs more exposure. And I like that they continued to show, you know, the difficulties of people trying to make a good life after prison that have served their time, that they can't get jobs and such. So, you know, that they continued to show that little um, political tidbit. I guess it's getting a little political, but... Um, I, I liked that. I liked that they had a company going and I enjoyed, uh, but absolutely the father daughter time and Cassie, you know, both sort of emulating her father and being able to do the, you know, side tracking the FBI guys and um, her answers to all the little questions when they're playing. Uh, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, and that it was so real. I mean, that, like, Cassie just knew. You're Ant-Man. You do this. You fought with Captain America. Like, I like that it was all so out in the open. That was just really refreshing. Yeah, I think I kind of liked the movie for the, the same reasons I liked Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, it's not all superhero stories have to end with the fate of the world or the universe in the protagonist's hands. Um, so, I mean, obviously after Infinity War, it was a nice change of pace to just deal with a, I mean, I would guess almost street level type movie. 
Um, so that was a, a nice change of pace. Um, I mean, they to- if there is this time gap between Infinity War and Avengers 4, they totally set uh, Cassie up as like a young Avenger type role. Um, so that's, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me one bit if she's uh, stature or some named superhero in Avengers 4. Um, I'm a sucker for funny movies too, and this I think this was way funnier than the first one. So if you, if you make a funny movie, you know I'll I'll probably give you a whole letter grade boost in the in the score. Yeah, I was uh, early on. I was thinking that I felt like this was uh, the MCU version of Up. You know how like Up starts and everybody's crying in the first ten minutes. Like, the way they started with just raw emotion and Janet and Hope losing her and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was done really well. Um, and I, I found it to be a really emotionally affecting movie. It may I mean, I have four daughters, so that may have some aspect to, like, how I'm, like, taking it in. But a lot of the scenes with, like, Scott and his daughter, it just... I felt like it was very heartfelt. Um... I also, for the first time, realized that this really is... This could have almost been a PG movie, right? Like, the action kind of keeps it in the PG-13 world. But this is the closest they've come to a movie you can take your 8-year-old to. And I think that's good. I mean, I like that. There's been talk about Power Pack maybe being like a PG MCU offering. And I kind of like that variety. And... As much as I think it's cool when they take, like, Logan and they go, like, an R-rated route, I think it's really interesting when they make something that's good that's PG, too, you know? Like, it shows you there's different ways of making a good movie. And so I, I thought that was uh, that was interesting and, and a lot of fun. Uh, Michael T. Ford mentioned in the discussion, I sh- was going to bring this up, too, uh, Agent Wu was a very nice addition to the MCU as well. Like, he was a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. I was laughing my ass off with the uh, dinner suggestion at the end. It wasn't a dinner suggestion, but that scene. I mean, anything he was in was golden. Um, when uh, Birch's guy walks in his office and he's watching the, uh, what do you call it, like the online magic yes. school. That was, that was gold. <laughs> it does make me want to see Coulson and Wu together. Which I know will probably never happen, but that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it would be, and that's the thing. I mean, they're still talking about Shield. You know, I mean, Foster was in Shield. Ghost was a, a spy for Shield. So you would think there's some Black Widow or Clint Barton interactions at some point. You know, especially if Ghost is carrying out assassinations on behalf of Shield. Yeah, what if we could get a ghost Bucky fight, like somewhere back in like the mid '90s or something? You know, like that could be that could be really good. Uh, and now Ghost has just been confirmed for that Black Widow solo movie. Black Widow is actually uh, Thunderbolts. <laughs> That's a joke. Just so you can tell, podcast. I was about to say we're going to clarify that, that was a joke. joke. <laughs> We're not providing Comic-Con spoilers for the panel that Marvel is not having. That could be so much fun, though. I mean, to see, like, Ghost and Bucky, like, a Thunderbolts. I'm more and more coming around to a cool Thunderbolts thing being an option, you know. 
who else? I mean, who else is out there? Obviously, Baron Zemo. He's kind of one of the guys that teeter along the good and bad line. But I, I was trying to think. I mean, Baron Zemo and Ghost are really the two bad villains. I don't know. I guess I haven't thought too much. Well, there was that Thunderbolts. The one they could do more is what was the Thunderbolt lineup that was like? I think it was Deadpool and Red Hulk and Winter Soldier and Punisher and Elektra or something like that. Am I totally making this up? I mean, no, that sounds right. There was at one time, I mean, Luke Cage was kind of like the Thunderbolts captain at one point. And now that Luke Cage is technically a bad boy. Mm. Who knows? That's how we get the uh, Netflix movie crossover. That is also another joke. (laughs) (laughs) Now we are all very worried that people have taken things we say seriously when they shouldn't have. Uh, All right. Um, Also, this is helpful. Michael T. Ford reminded us, uh, we didn't get Wasp in this movie. We should probably say it was awesome to see Evangeline Lilly get to actually be a superhero. Um, I know a lot of Wasp fans. Hopefully next week we might do something where we'll talk to a big-time Wasp fan about how cool it is to finally see her enter the MCU, even though she's seemingly leaving it very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we need to talk about that post credit scene. Yes, absolutely. So... Um, yeah, well, I mean, go ahead, Rihanna. What'd you think about it? I, that that was a lot of people getting poofed. I mean, three out of four in that scene. Um, I think I agree. I believe we've talked about this a little bit this week. Is like we don't know enough about the quantum realm to know the impact, the you know, total impact, and what that leaves. Like, can people only leave it if they're summoned out of it? Or is Scott stuck there forever, like Janet was? Well, the other thing it opened up is they said, you know, watch out not to fall into any time vortexes or whatever. So there's also the possibility that we'll see the main Avengers go back in time. And all of a sudden, Scott will just be standing there. And they're like, where did you come from? He's like, I just walked through a time vortex. I don't know. You know, like that the whole time travel thing could be very connected to where he is as well. And with Captain Marvel taking place in the 90s, could he pop up there? See, and that's the other thing. Didn't the, the, that hashtag show reported once that the uh, Nega bands were going to be in Captain Marvel? And those draw power from the quantum realm? Yeah, I think it is. It's interesting that they've developed the quantum realm so it can do anything, right? Like... Oh, we need to heal Ghost? Well, Quantum Realm heals that, and it's an energy source, and it does all these other things. I mean, there's definitely, if she has Quantum Bands, which is part of the Captain Marvel sort of ethos, or story or whatever, I think it's very possible that her powers are that she draws energy out of the Quantum Realm and uses it to do her powers and all that kind of stuff. We were saying this week it'd be kind of fun if Bill Foster or Egghead had created her, uh, since they were part of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? Like, if they had created her uh, her quantum bands, it'd be kind of interesting to see 
like a, a scene with um, Lawrence Fishburne in Captain Marvel. So, And even if he accidentally gets Scott out of the Quellner realm without knowing it, like, he obviously doesn't think anything of it because this ant pops out, like this ant size, whatever. When working with the Quantum Realm, maybe that's how Scott could end up in the 90s. Yeah, and then that last end credit scene, we also see how terribly awful it would be to live in a world where half the people suddenly disappeared. You know, just test patterns on the TV screens, empty streets. That ant stuck like in a Black Mirror episode forever doing Scott Lang's life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that it just came all across super, super creepy. I mean, the whole theater was laughing because it's an ant playing the drums. But, yeah, I mean, that was the first, well, outside of Infinity War, you know, that's our first look at a, a post-snap world. And it's probably not doing too well if the TV shut off. Yeah, Avengers 4 has the opportunity to open us at a terribly low, terrifying space. You know, like, if they do a good job of doing, like, five minutes of showing us the world after half the people die, and just the chaos, like, I'm just thinking of, like, airplanes crashed in the middle of the desert because their pilots died, you know, like, the wreckage of that kind of stuff, or, you know, like, old train yards where the trains had, you know, gone off the rails because there's nobody there to operate, like, there's just all kinds of like mass graves too, like just cemeteries that go on for acres. Like there's just so many ways they could set that up as this terrifying place to live. You're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I was thinking maybe like a Mad Max type movie, but now you're talking about mass graves and stuff. Jeepers. It's yeah. It could be really interesting to see where they go with it. So yeah, Michael T. Ford has mentioned that it is, uh, it is like left behind the pinnacle of, Christian subculture corny crappy movies where the rapture happens at half well not half but some of the people on earth disappear uh, that's a uh, it's a go to genre within a very specific part of the culture so if you want to see a terrible movie Kirk Cameron's left behind will uh, kind of t- show you the snapping uh, from another perspective alright this episode's gone a little long I think with our tech issues and everything so we'll just wrap it up um Mike, uh, we did have Love Waffle uh, comment last week a little bit about Cloak and Dagger and uh, why he feels like it's been a little bit slow. And I think uh, that does make sense. And there are some logic gaps in their plot. So uh, we totally agree with that. Michael T. Ford has been with us in the live chat, giving us some good ideas and stuff. Thanks for listening, my our friend. Good to have you on here. I think that does it. Um, next week, we haven't figured this out, but I think think maybe we'll try to do some uh talking to the the listeners kind of like a listeners takeover episode maybe of the podcast we'll see uh but we'll figure out something and we'll see you guys next week bye